Hello and welcome to the Earthkeepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind. People who believe that earth care must be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. My name is Forrest Inslee, and today I'll be talking to an old friend of mine, Leah Costamo. Leah and her husband, Marku, co-founded Arosha Canada, and today she provides leadership and spiritual direction at Arosha's Brooksdale Environmental Center in the Greater Vancouver area. We'll be talking about her work and also about a book that she wrote called Planted, A Story of Creation, Calling, and Community. The work of Arosha worldwide is in great part focused on education, on helping people to understand the spirituality of creation care, but also the science of it, and importantly, on the interconnectedness of both realms. Conservation science is the foundation of our work. It's the bedrock of our work. It's a bit like Adam naming the animals. You know, that is our our portal into the actual naming and studying is our portal into the the whole, the bigger. You know, the micro is the is the picture of the macro. And so that that knowing and that studying is what incites the wonder and the appreciation and then leads to the caring. Welcome friends to the Earthkeepers podcast. Welcome, Leah. Maybe you could start by telling us a bit about what you do. I work for an environmental organization called Arasha. It's sort of strange name. It means the rock in Portuguese because our first center, environmental center, was started over 35 years ago in Portugal. And it's in 20 countries around the world. So uh, I work at our center in BC, just across the border, south of Vancouver, We do four things primarily, environmental education, sustainable agriculture, environmental conservation science, and then we also have a guest house, so we do hospitality. What is the center called? Arasha is the name of the organization, so lots of people just call it the Arasha Center, A-R-O-C-H-A. But historically, the name has been Brooksdale. That's the name it came with. It was a property donated to us. So we're also known as the Brooksdale Environmental Center, or sometimes Arasha's Brooksdale Environmental Center. (laughs) That is a mouthful. (laughs) That is a mouthful. (laughs) So how did you get involved? 25 years ago now, I was a student at Regent College. And you might recall because you, Forrest, were a student at Regent College. Yes, I was. (laughs) At the same time. And I was in a class with you called Incarnational Mission with a couple named Peter and Miranda Harris. And they were the international founders of this organization. So through that four months with them, learning from them, learning this vision of creation care as Christian mission. It kind of brought together my love for the natural world and my love for God in Christian work. So I was hooked. I have to say that that class was also the turning point for me in the sense that I had these warring loves in me, love for Jesus, love for the church, but also love for creation. And I had a hard time reconciling those, especially because I think in the evangelical tradition, I had been trained to value human flourishing above all things and and didn't see any sort of middle ground. So I'm curious, what was your transformation like in terms of your theology and your your point of view about earth care? I think similarly, because I, I had grown up with this great love for creation and then being in a more evangelical tradition in my 20s, that was seen as not valued, I would say. So it had already started to change when I came to Regent College because there are some professors there called Lauren and Mary Ruth Wilkinson, who are basically the grandfathers of the creation care, Christian creation care movement. So it was sort of like drinking the clearest water after you've been so thirsty and knowing like, I know that water's out there. I just don't know where it is. <laughs> and I had I had worked for a, a campus ministry 
that definitely didn't value it. And I used to show up to the meetings in my Birkenstocks and my big woolly sweater and (laughs) got labeled as the fringy environmentalist, even though I really wasn't doing that much environmentally. (laughs) So it was nice to come to a place where both were valued, both love for God and love for the earth. So if you were to back up even further and look at where your interest in creation, your, your love for the earth, how did it develop? Well, it's funny because I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the suburbs where you are pretty disconnected from your environment, from the desert, because you're living in swimming pools and at shopping malls. <laughs> but every summer, my family would go up to Orcas Island in, in the San Juan Islands and stay at my grandparents' house. And my grandparents' neighbors were a couple named Frank and Dorothy Richardson, and he was an ornithologist who taught at UW. And in fact, there's still a biodiversity kind of museum or center named after him there at UW, University of Washington. So they, we pretty much spent every moment we could with them, my sister, my brother and I, and they had hand-built kayaks that they would take us out in. They could tell you the name of every flower or plant you saw, usually the Latin name. Once we came over and they had been they had these little tiny bones on their plate and we were asking, you oh, know, what did you, what did you have for lunch? And they said, well, we were driving back from Deer Harbor and a robin flew into our windshield and died. <laughs> so we pulled over, <laughs> picked up the robin and brought it home and ate it for lunch. <laughs> so I, um, I've never gone that far to eat roadkill, but they just through their whole life, through their love of birds, especially Um, but they also had an organic garden that we helped till with them. Just the way they lived their life dramatically influenced me. So I think it was the combination of being in that almost magical place of Orcas Island when you're coming from the desert up to the temperate rainforest. Although actually the islands are a different ecosystem. It's a Gary Oak ecosystem. And then these people, it's like Rachel Carson's quote, she says something like, in order for a child to keep their inborn sense of wonder for the natural world, they need at least one adult to share that wonder with them, like fanning that flame. So I think early on, those those two people, Frank and Dorothy, who were just delightful people in and of themselves, but their hospitality in creation towards just these little neighbor kids really, really, really impacted me. It's interesting that in many ways, you carry on their legacy, especially when it comes to children, because one of the things that you're involved in, your community is involved in, is the education of, of kids. And as the father of a teenager, I think a lot about that. I, I think about ways that I have and haven't adequately connected my daughter to creation. And there was a phrase that you used in your book, Planted. What, what was it? Nature? Oh, nature deficit disorder. I'm wondering if you can talk about what that really is. What What is nature deficit disorder and how do you try to work against that? Yeah, it's a term coined by Richard Love, who wrote Last Child in the Woods. And his he has sort of a database of stu- empirical studies on this topic. And I understand that actually some doctors now in the States are diagnosing this like as a thing and actually prescribing walking in the woods <laughs> as a medicine for it. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically the fact that that kids don't spend time outside. They are on screens or they're in class or they're playing sports on a field, which are all like cal- class and sports screens aside, are good things to do. And that because of this, kids are more anxious. It's not necessarily always a direct correlation, but there's this fascinating book called Your Brain on Nature. And it shows all these studies they've done on things like ADHD, for example. When kids go for a walk, particularly with an adult who they trust in the forest before school, their symptoms of ADHD go way down. And things like crazy things. They did this study in Pennsylvania on people recovering from gallbladder surgery. They put half the patients on one side of the hospital where they only had a view of a brick wall. And then the other patients recovering had a view of a forest. And the patients, and then they took stats on how much pain relief they needed and how fast they got better. And the people with the view of the forest got better remarkably faster. 
And so the book is just study after study. So kids, as you can imagine, are just growing up more stressed out with higher cortisol levels, the stress hormone in their body, and it affects them cognitively, physically, obesity is on the rise, all these things. It's all, you can't just say one thing. It's, it's systemic. It's a systemic problem. Obviously, not everyone has access to a forest, but I wonder if you think that the same principles apply, uh, let's say, if you were in a city park or perhaps even the desert where you grew up. Oh, for sure. And they've, they've done studies on that, like even, even just somebody's backyard, like even if you're suburban or if you're in the city in an apartment, just it's really having a tree or a plant in that same book, Your Brain on Nature, they did a study in Sweden, I think, on office workers and how many sick days they recorded. And they found that office workers with a view of a plant, like a house plant in their office, recorded fewer sick days than office workers with no view of a plant. <laughs> Very interesting. So it doesn't have to be a whole forest. That's better because of negative ions and all the things that are happening just even chemically. But there's something about even just seeing a plant that is that is recalibrating somehow. So I'm wondering, what have you seen when you have had children at the center or where you've taken your educational programs to the children? What have you seen in terms of, of reactions? Well, I'd say even before reactions, our, our educator who's been with us the longest, her name's Ruth DeCoats, she started to notice because we work with a lot of kids from a more inner city background and from a culture where sort of hiking and nature stuff isn't, it's not the norm. So she noticed that the kids walking down to the pond, it's this gentle little slope. And these kids week after week would be going, I'm going to fall off the cliff. I'm going to fall off the cliff. And she's like, this, there's like some rampant issue with inner ear thing going on with these kids. And then she realized later that these kids had never walked down a grassy slope before. They had only gone downstairs and been in parks, like at schools, but that were flat. So the first challenge was just getting them down to the pond and just feeling safe enough to walk down a little slope. And then uh, I think the thing that's amazing, I, I was writing an article about these some of these kids. And I so I was interviewing them afterwards. And it was so fascinating because I went along with them for the field trip. And literally, they were just like turning over little logs and sticks and finding little sow bugs, you know, stuff that lots of people 30 years ago just did every day, you know, after school. But these kids had never done it in their lives. And so I was asking them, what was that like? What, what did it feel like to be out there turning these stumps over and stuff? And, and these kids were like, I felt like a hero. The boys were all like, I felt like a hero. It was such an adventure. And the girls were like, I was scared. But then I touched them. I felt so brave. <laughs> <laughs> and really, it was the simplest, gentlest activity and we have, you know, kind of bigger activities where they actually get to take a net into a pond and do pond dipping and, and ID creatures from the pond, fish and, and invertebrates. So that's even more exciting. But I think, think the thing that amazed me is just how the simplest things incited this degree of wonder that seemed disproportionate to what they were doing or looking at. Like holding a worm, like was thrilling. <laughs> Um, we noticed that the kids, especially from Christian schools, because they tend to be wealthier kids, they aren't so filled with wonder at holding a worm because they live in the suburbs and they have backyards. And But it's the kids from the inner city schools that just the simplest interaction with creation sort of knocks their socks off. What strikes me as I listen to you is, yes, on the one hand, it, it, it seems like there are profound benefits uh, to the kids to actually spend time encountering, engaging with nature. But there's also a real purpose to such activity that in some ways has to do with the future of the world. Because who who else is going to advocate for creation and, and find ways to to care for it and invent sustainable ways of life, except for the people who already have that connection to nature? For sure. That's sort of one of our mottos. Our environmental educator, Ruth, at the where her signature is, she has a quote from Stephen Bauman Prediger, who's a professor of environmental studies at Hope College in East Coast someplace. And he says something like, we can't care for what we don't love and we don't love 
what we don't know. So the first challenge is get them know it, then they'll care for it, or then they'll love it, then they'll care for it. But a generation totally disconnected from creation is is a very scary thing, I think. I want to pick up on that word, uh, knowing, and knowing about as a, as a phrase, because it reminds me of one of the ways that you describe the work you do uh, and the place that you live. It's an environmental study center. And I'm curious why the emphasis on study. Well, the funny thing is we've dropped that bit of our name, the study. Oh, have you? (laughs) When I wrote the book, that was still there. (laughs) Now we're just an environmental center. But study is, I'd say the conservation science is the foundation of our work. It's the bedrock of our work. Even those of us who aren't directly involved in that aspect of science. On our team, we do have three staff who that's all they do is science work. And there's different studies on in our little watershed of the little Campbell River watershed. They're studying about 14 species at risk. So these are species that are either endangered or at risk of are threatened or at risk of their habitat is threatened or there's something that is threatening them that might make them endangered. So even those of us who aren't doing that hands-on research, you know, we'll stop a meeting to look out the window and see what kind of bird that is flying by. (laughs) Because I think that is the, it's a bit like Adam naming the animals. You know, that is our, our portal into the actual naming and studying is our portal into the, the whole, the bigger, you know, the micro is the, is the picture of the macro. And so that, that knowing and that studying is what incites the wonder and the appreciation and then leads to the caring. In another part of your book, you described the themes of your work as creation, care, hospitality, and justice. And I found that a curious, to be a curious combination. I wonder if in view of those three things, those three thematic elements, you could talk about a a typical day in the life of the center. Well, yeah, a typical, I don't know if there is a typical day, so that's a problem, but I'm mindful. I think of Our center director, David Anderson, was outside one day. Uh, Sometimes we rent our site or part of our site to film crews. That's how we we make money sometimes to pay for everything we're doing. So there was a like scouts for this film crew were out looking at our site. And and the guy's looking around and this school bus pulls up and all these kids who, you know, seem like they weren't from like the rich white schools, you know, they come pouring off the bus. And then there's some seniors walking by and then some people walk by with like shovels. (laughs) And he's like, what do you guys do here? (laughs) So we have these three teams. So our education team welcomes over 2000 school kids a year. So I'd say they're they're welcoming at least least six school groups a week. So at least three days a week, there will be like one or two hour school groups on site and they'll be in the gardens or down by the pond or in the forest. And then our science team will be working somewhere in the watershed, usually down by our river or somewhere else in the watershed studying these species. So it's like a monitoring project. If it's not the dead of winter, our garden team will be out in the fields. So we have two farmers and then they have interns and volunteers who join them. And they're feeding about 500 people a week from that garden. It's a CSA, Community Shared Agriculture Project. So there's about 170 shares of people who get like a weekly bin of veggies from there. And then they they provide all the vegetables for our our center as well, for our guest house. So they are growing a lot of food, (laughs) literally tons and tons of food. (laughs) Yeah. And then I, I lead retreats sometimes out of the guest house. So there might be a retreat going on. We, we also partner with seniors who are, you know, lack access to creation. So there might be a seniors group out. Sometimes we pair them up with the kids, the inner city kids. So they might be doing a cooking program together. There's over 25, maybe closer to 30 people on staff at our site, some in admin, some in program. So there's a lot of things happening. Oh, we also have a little gift shop. So some people might be just coming to the gift shop. <laughs> So I I hear the creation care. I hear the hospitality for sure. Yeah. Tell me more about the justice theme. Yeah, the justice theme. I mean, I think there's first justice for creation, um, that creation 
how we get our food is all often unjust for the earth in its level of pesticides and herbicides and overuse of the soil. So there's that justice. And then the people that we partner with or invite on site, we have been intentional, not just to cater to people who can already afford or have the means to get out into creation. So we partner with the Surrey School District with a program called Girls in Action, and they work with kids that might be more economically challenged. And in particular with girls in junior high who are either identified as bullies or at risk of being bullied. And they put these kids together. They don't tell them which is which, like, oh, you're the bully. (laughs) You're the (laughs) bullied. (laughs) No name tags, but they put them together and they take them out on these little excursions. So we're one of their kind of favorite spots. So they'll bring them out on a regular basis. And it's quite amazing because you know, these are the kids who are walking down the grassy slope and think they're going to fall off a cliff when really they're just strolling (laughs) on this nice little path. And they're the ones who they're walking, you know, up to the woods. And it's a very tame little woodland. It's like not a scary place, but they're clinging to each other and saying, are there wolves in here? Are there bears in here? And we're like, no, actually there's a business park just on the other patch of this little forest. Like this is really suburban. (laughs) But there's something, the barriers, uh, Richard Love talks about this, that, that kids actually increase in sociability outside. The kind of playground politics of school gets all dismantled out in nature. Because everybody's on the, everybody's afraid of the bear. <laughs> everybody's afraid of the wolf. Everybody's enchanted by the sow bug they just found under the log. So basically, friendships are forged. And the kids, some of the programs, they're making food together and sharing. There's this sort of communion theme going on. So it's both, they have like the tiniest little bit of risk. It's not real risk, it's all imagined. And then real communion with each other. And then the wonder of creation. And so, there's this sense of justice that these kids get to experience what rich kids totally take take for granted. Yeah, it's interesting that you started your explanation of justice with justice for the environment. And as someone who works in community development, one of the tendencies or assumptions or biases really that my students have is is in favor of social justice. And so we we now call our, our social justice course social and environmental justice because you really can't have one without the other. You're not really fully paying attention to the whole if you're not looking also at the larger environment. And that I know is an important theme to you. You, you riff on this uh, term ecology and what that really means, that everything is connected. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah. I mean, the word ecology comes from the Greek word oikos, which is just means household. And in a household, it's all relationships that are connected. If there's one member of the family who's really out of whack and not happy, that ripples throughout the rest of the family. (laughs) So, you know, you saw, for example, in the Syrian situation, there were, and this might be controversial, but, but lots of people have been writing about this and thinking about this, that there was two droughts, like once every hundred year droughts in in the 80s and 90s in Syria, which then led to political arrest, unrest because the farmers weren't getting the help that they needed from Damascus. So they went to Damascus and start to, you know, clamoring for justice, which then led to the whole civil war. So you could say that climate injustice, <laughs> a suffering climate, which leads to more droughts, was an impetus for then this greater injustice during the civil war and then the refugee crisis. Like you can't pull them apart. You can't just say, well, this is just two political factions warring against each other, but the environment is involved in it. And the people who are the most vulnerable, the subsistence farmers are going to be the most vulnerable to, to climate crisis or to soil erosion or whatever you know, drought, whatever the environmental impact is, it's going to be the most vulnerable that can't just go buy some bottled water or can't just get on a plane and, you know, take a break from the severe heat or whatever it is. They're going to have to endure it. 
you know, not have clean drinking water or whatever the case is, they will be, they will bear the brunt. So it's a, it's justice on two levels, both for the environment and then both for the most vulnerable living in that environment. It's interesting that uh, when we talk about the two kinds of justice, we are forced to talk about two kinds of justice. I, I find myself longing for a better all-inclusive term, which is all about everything is connected. But but we think in this dichotomy, there's humankind and then there's creation. And I don't know, have you found a, a good word that bridges that gap? Um Not really. I mean, ecology (laughs) is the word because we're part of ecology because we are creation. (laughs) Even though people don't think of ecology that way, I agree that that's that's the best best word word. uh, to date anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know if I think of a better one. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. As we pause in our conversation with Leah Costomo, I want to offer some questions for you, our listeners, to consider. First, what are the concerns, the questions, the needs that have drawn you to the Earthkeepers podcast? What compels or intrigues you about the conversations we have? What are you hoping to hear? For my part, I'm helping to build this podcast because I want to feel like I'm not alone in my efforts to make a difference for the good of the earth. Honestly, I do what I do because I need to feel more connected to people who care as much about creation as I do. To that end, I want to offer a heads up about present and future opportunities for greater interconnectedness. As an organization, we're growing into our vision still, but We know for sure that we want to create ways for our listeners to be more connected to one another in virtual global community. And we have some good ideas in the work, so stay tuned. For now, let me encourage you to subscribe to the Earthkeepers podcast and to visit our website at circlewood.online to sign up for regular updates about ways to get involved. Now, one thing that Earthkeepers tend to share in common is an orientation toward action. Many of us are drawn to act out of love for nature and the urge to protect and care for the earth. At other times, we may feel driven to action by anger at environmental injustice and outright abuse of creation. Leah Costomo encourages us to look at our approach to earth care from a slightly different angle, to look closely at our own day-to-day habits and commitments to ask, what are the actions I can choose not to do? Are there ways to refrain from certain actions to practice a simpler way of being in the world that benefits not just our ecologies, but our very souls as well? So one of the main goals uh, for this podcast is to offer people practical, actionable ways to actually make a difference and to be a difference. And I noticed that in your book, Planted, you actually turn the question that I ask around about what can people do? And you ask the question, well, what can we stop doing? And I found that very enlightening, actually. Could you tell us more about what you mean by that? Yeah, gosh, I'd have to read those pages in the book to know what I meant then. (laughs) I think what I mean now is, and I maybe believe it more wholeheartedly, um, because I wrote that before I became enchanted with Instagram. (laughs) That's the thing Mm -hmm. I need to stop sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, so I think stopping um, a a Sabbath practice where you practice stopping for our family, at least me, I won't speak for, for everybody in my family, but I try to stop screens, except for maybe a good movie. I make exceptions for, you know, like one good movie <laughs> and stop consumption. Like this is a day to not need to go shopping, to not do online shopping, to not think that I am those things that I can purchase. Yeah, to stop well, I should. I was going to say to stop driving long distances, although yesterday was Sabbath day and I drove all the way to the North Shore, which is an hour to go snowshoeing. So <laughs> usually, though, try not to go too far and just take a walk. Do something of creation instead of something man-made like consuming or 
looking at something man-made like on a screen. I think you've made so many good points about our addiction to consumption, that stopping those things that, that feed that addiction really require a more systemic, broader view. It's not just doing things for the sake of doing them or seeing our neighborhoods improved, but really understanding, again, this sense of connectedness, that that the things that we stop doing will ultimately, potentially benefit the whole earth. And our own souls. And our souls. Well, tell me about <laughs> that, actually. <laughs> How does that work in your life? I mean, just yesterday, I was... Some, I have this little walk that I do behind our house. We're fortunate to have a little patch of woods that aren't ours. They're a neighbor's, but he's an absentee landlord. So we feel like he would really love for us to walk on his patch of woods. <laughs> so I live on a community farm with six other households. We share the farm together. It's not the, it's actually the first Arasha property, but we bought it when we were donated a new property. So it's now called Kingfisher Farm. And we're trying to live in community and steward the land and we have this little patch of woods and sometimes I go in there and I just sit on a log and I just breathe. There is a recalibration, I feel, almost in my spirit of, well, it's like what Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. And I really think that Jesus wouldn't have told his followers to do that if he hadn't done it himself. If he hadn't looked at some real lilies, pondered them. And a friend of mine, Matt Humphrey, was telling me that that word in Greek, consider, can also be sometimes translated, apprentice yourself unto these lilies. So I don't have wild lily. Oh, there are wild lilies in the spring, but it's mostly Douglas fir trees around me. So how do I apprentice myself to these trees, you know, that are standing so majestically and seemingly as best they can without having a sentient brain, um, doing what they're supposed to do, like glorifying God just by their being. It takes, I actually have to get out of my chair and outside to be able to do that though. I can't just have a experience in my head about it. I have to actually go outside and breathe the air that they're respiring also. You've mentioned Sabbath and time away as an antidote to this sort of hyper consumerism. Another Part of your book that struck me, though, was this idea that gratitude is also an antidote to our, our addiction to consuming. How does that work out for you? I think in my book, I talk about this, this Hebrew notion of enough. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a catchphrase now, enough. <laughs> but during the Passover, they had a prayer. And I can't remember, they knew something. All the Hebrew scholars out there will be like, oh my gosh, you butchered that. <laughs> but they say this prayer, like if God had only brought us out of Egypt, but hadn't given us the pro promised land, it would have been enough. If he had only given us the promised land, but not, you know, provided a king, it would have been enough. If he had only provided the king, but hadn't, you know, on and on. So this sense of enoughness and gratitude for that enoughness. I think I was programmed through my, you know, just enculturation in, in the American way of life to always be striving for the next thing. In my case, because I grew up in the 80s, it was the next polo shirt, <laughs> the next Ralph Lauren polo shirt. <laughs> now it would probably be the next REI fleet or something. <laughs> but that gratitude for what do I already have and what is already around me and what can I say that this is enough I do a journaling practice now every morning. And part of the journaling thing, the first thing you do is you say three things you're grateful for. And I try to usually pick really, really obvious things like my bed, you know, <laughs> a roof over my head, <laughs> the smell of coffee in the other room, legs that work that can take me outside. And I don't think I've ever mentioned a thing that I own really. Well, except my dog. I've mentioned him. So I guess I own him. But but it's all relational things or things that are keeping me safe and dry and warm. You, you noted that that's the hallmark of American culture, the opposite point of view, where everything is sort of predicated on not having enough. There's always more to be had. That lesson is ingrained in us from, from our early childhood. But really, I think you could say that because of globalization, that's a global value. It isn't, unfortunately, just about America. And 
I find that, you know, in, in my work with uh, folks from other countries, other cultures, that really is, is becoming a more dominant theme. And in the end is, is really a formula for disaster because when they become hyper consumers, when, when more and more people consume and understand that they don't have enough, that really stresses the limits of the earth to provide. Yes, I totally agree. And that's, yeah, it's hard because, you know, we in North America, our ecological footprint is something like uh, we would need five, over five earths to take care. If everybody lived at our level, we would need five earths. And the only reason why we're still functioning is because most people don't live at our (laughs) consumption level. But as in particular, India and China are coming on board as just more affluent you know, just higher gross national products and all the rest. Yeah, there's more demand for everything, steel, oil, plastic. I, I will mention that some of the guests that we've had on the podcast are themselves representatives of indigenous cultures from different places in the world. And I think that they understand that their cultures have things to teach the mainstream, have have things to teach us which help us to counter that narrative of not enough. And I'm wondering as, you know, being where you are up in British Columbia, have you looked to the local uh, First Peoples traditions uh, and and wisdom as uh, any sort of guide for some of your practices and thinking at the center? I'm humbled by that question because I feel like we need to do it better and more. We do have a relationship with the Semiamu Band, which is our local indigenous group, and they've come out and done a blessing on our property. And so on our signage, we acknowledge that we're on their ancestral territory, which is unceded. We did for a while, we have a a good friend, Cheryl Bear, who's from northern BC, and she was on our board for a while. And that was wonderful to have her voice in the early days. And then we've done a couple conferences where we've intentionally invited um, Indigenous, at least one Indigenous speaker to be in the mix. And I, and I think one of the things, the last conference we did, a fellow named Terry LeBlanc, you might have heard of him. He came out and he it was very convicting and humbling because he said, you know, you white Christians talk so much about creation care. He said, but but we talk about creation caring for us. There's so much hubris to think that. <laughs> and it was like, oh, yeah. So I think we we need to more and more be respectful and open to that, that sense of creation caring for us. One of our Circlewood community members has helped us to change our language from creation care, really, which she points out can be an awkward phrase if it means you're thinking of creation as other than you. She's taught us to speak about the birds, the trees, even the stones as our relatives, because we're all part of the system. We are part of creation. We don't stand apart from it. And that has just had such a profound impact on the way that, that we think and the way that we understand our presence with the earth, with God's creation, that we are it. Yeah, that's so valuable. I, yeah, I'm still learning that and I want to learn that more. This idea of footprint is one that we hear a lot about, but that seems to be an important uh, framework. And I'm wondering how can people be more aware of, of their footprint? Like, how do they know what they're doing and what the impacts are? I think the easiest way is just to take a little test. There's, it was developed by, so you have to be careful which test you take, because when I was thinking about this, I think I did one on like, it was like an outdoor clothing company and it was, you know, you do a little test and then it's like, oh, you have a super low footprint here, buy some more stuff. (laughs) You're okay. (laughs) But it was developed by some researchers at University of British Columbia. So they have a website. So you would just Google UBC global footprint or ecological footprint. And then that's the test you should take. And the things that will throw you off that will make your footprint a lot bigger. I think mine, when I did it, was like the average North American. Well, the the U.S. is higher than Canada, but the U.S. is about 25 acres per person. Like it takes you, takes 25 acres to absorb all your carbon, to grow all your food, to produce all the stuff you need. 
I think Canada's a couple acres smaller. I think mine at the time was 17, which I felt really great about. <laughs> but the things that throw your footprint up higher are basically travel. It's two main things, how you get places and what you eat. So if you eat meat, your footprint goes up. If you have a mostly vegetarian diet, your footprint goes down because it takes so many acres um, to grow the grain, to feed the cow, to get the water, to water the the grain, to feed the cow. <laughs> um, whereas you could just be eating that grain. And we do still eat meat at our environmental center, but we, we only eat it like maybe once a week. So it's kind of our stand of solidarity with people in the developing world you know, for whom that's just their normal diet and that's all they can afford. And then one airplane trip um, is going to add a, a few acres to your... So looking at like, how do I vacation? Do I have to fly far away to vacation? Or can I just go vacationing close to home? Can I do teleconferencing for this meeting or do I need to fly to Chicago for this meeting? You try to, you know, reduce and reuse first. And then you recycle last. <laughs> I think it's the same for carbon offsetting. So you try to reduce your footprint. And then when you need to travel for whatever reason, for work or something, or some family reunion that's only happening, you know, every five years, then you um, you can offset. We have a program called Climate Stewards, which calculates, you know, how much carbon you're going to burn in that flight. And then it suggest a donation. And then that donation goes towards planting trees in Ghana and Peru, which will then capture that amount of carbon. And that's a program that Arusha runs. Yeah, not Arusha Canada, but Arusha International. So if you went to Arusha International's website, arusha.org, and then up in the menu, you would see climate stewards. Yeah, my husband works for an organization called Himalayan Life, and they have a recycling plant in Nepal. And they're actually starting an offsetting program as well, I think. And then the money from that will go back to their work with street kids, collecting bottles, recycling. I find that in your book, you have a very refreshing realism and humility that some of these environmental justice books don't have. You, you mentioned that you were happy with your score of 17 when the American norm is 24. But then, of course... When you compare that to the norm of so much of the rest of the world, which is what, six acres <laughs> versus 17, yeah. mm -hmm. then, then we have to be humbled. And you were, in your, in your book, you talked about that uh, yeah. experience. I'm wondering if you could read that story of your, your visitors and where you realize the, the dangers of having too much confidence in, in your sustainable choices. Yeah, so this is a true story. Being leaders of a national Christian conservation organization, my husband Marku and I occasionally get to play host to leaders of other national Christian conservation organization. It's a pretty small fraternity, and while there are no secret handshakes to signify one's membership in this elite club, there are plenty of other signifiers. Like, for instance, turning one's living room into a laundromat. Ah, I see you're using the laundry line, Mr. Environmental CEO observes as I show him and his wife into our home. Why, yes, I say, practically pawing the ground with my toe. In your living room, no less, remarks the wife with obvious approval. The environment's more important than aesthetics, I chirp. Indeed, everyone harmonizes in sympathetic agreement. We weave through our 800-square-foot dwelling to the kitchen, and I can tell they are taking mental stock of our possessions and lack thereof. Feeling very chuffed about our obviously moderate ecological footprint, I brew up some fair trade organic loose-leaf tea, and we start in on the favorite topic of all environmental CEOs everywhere, the evils of a consumer society. We bash all the billionaires we can think of for their private jets, mega mansions, and fleets of Hummers. What hedonist. Conversely, what enlightened souls this guy and his wife are. So perceptive when it comes to society's ills. So bang on. They are truly so very likable. I start to wonder if we can set up some sort of arranged marriage between our children so that we can spend all our future Christmases together. In the middle of my reverie, Mr. Environmental CEO shifts the conversation to dishwashers. Not the billionaire's Uber Deluxe dishwashers, but the average citizen's plain old dishwashers. Such ener energy hogs, he says. 
And whatever happened to the good old days of hand washing the dishes? And how about redirecting the money people spend on electricity to feeding the poor? The litany goes on and on, and I begin to feel more and more like a kid caught with her hand in the proverbial cookie jar. For all the while this guy is musing, I am trying to magically inflate myself like a puffer fish so as to conceal what I am standing right in front of, our brand new Bosch ultra quiet dishwasher, which I love to pieces. Yeah, I read that and, and realized how easy it is for us to get all sanctimonious about the choices we make. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I do think there's a real danger in this because yeah. we can make significant choices, get to that place where we've made changes in our lives that do make a difference. But I think the the satisfaction that we feel at times can make us stop. It can make us forget that there is always more to do, not in a guilt-inducing way, but but we, we, we can't stop looking at the ways that we can, can change. I, for example, recently put solar panels across the whole uh, south side of my house. And the solar panels charge my electric car that I bought two years ago. So basically, I drive to work for free and I brag about that a lot. But I realize that smugness that I sometimes have uh, really stops me from remembering that, oh, this weekend I'm actually flying to Chicago for a conference that, you know, strictly is not necessary. And I could probably just get the recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's always a rub. <laughs> I appreciate though the the honesty of your tone and your willingness to say that this is me too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one question that I've been asking in, in every podcast episode lately is, in the face of possible despair, where do you find your hope? Interestingly, choosing hope is a theme throughout your book, Planted. And I wonder if you might read again from your book one of the statements about the biblical grounding for hope. Yeah. So this is in the chapter called Subterranean Grace in a World of Wounds. And it says, one of the liabilities of an ecological education, writes Aldo Leopold, is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Knowing what conservationists know, it's only logical that they would be tempted to despair. But the Christian way is one of hope. Consider Paul's words in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is a passage that roots us in hope. Hope that someday, somehow, some way, redemption is possible for all things. In this passage, Paul links creation and humanity's redemption to the person of Jesus. Through Christ, all things were created. He sustains all things and holds them together. And then through his resurrection, he reconciles all things. Where might all things stop, do you think? Does it stop with people? This is how I used to read it. But the radical point this passage seems to be making is that creation itself participates in redemption. It is our anthropocentric view of the world that causes us to read all things as all people. That's powerful. Thank you. I, I would say my only caveat, <laughs> I totally still believe all that, but I see as things have gotten worse since I, since I wrote this book, I mean, just in five or so years. And uh, there's a fellow that teaches at UBC, his name, or used to at least, his name is Richard Wright. And he wrote a book called The End of Progress. And he talks about the, the citizens of Easter Island, which deduded their island of trees. Like Easter Island is this barren island now, you know, with those monolithic heads. But at one point there was all these trees and the trees were part of a, you know, 
to build houses and fires and stuff, but also part of their worship, evidently. And he said there was a point at which they knew they were cutting down the last tree and they went ahead and they did it anyways. <laughs> and who know? I don't know what their religion was, but I think there are times when we can just race on to pie in the sky kind of faith instead of a more robust trust that involves us in the ecology of the solution. So I'm always a little leery to just tell people, just read Colossians 1, like God's got it all, redemption's coming. I do believe that. I do believe God's got it all and redemption's coming. But I also believe that we've messed up the world way more than any other species, except maybe beavers. Beavers can do a lot of damage. (laughs) They can flood a whole valley. (laughs) But because we have opposable thumbs and really sharp, you know, overdeveloped prefrontal cortex, we can do a lot of damage. So we have to be part of the redemptive story as well and not just go pie in the sky. God's going to do it all without us. So it's uh, action and hope. Yeah. I think you can only, Joanna Macy talks about this and she wrote a book called Active Hope. She's an environmental activist in her 80s now. And she says you actually cannot have hope unless you do something. That that's just kind of naive, wishful thinking. But that activity towards the end that you're you're working towards, towards whatever just end of justice, is what sustains you in hope and gives you hope and then brings about the hope that you're longing for. We've been talking with Leah Costumo, co-founder of Arosha Canada and author of the book Planted a story of creation, calling, and community. If you'd like to know more about her work or the work of Arosha in general, you'll find helpful links and resources in this episode's notes section. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what you hear, support us by leaving a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. And please, Share Earthkeepers podcast with anyone you know who seeks right relationship to the earth. This podcast is an expression of Circlewood, an organization whose purpose it is to cultivate transformative communities that love and care for all creation. If you'd like to learn more about the Circlewood community, please visit our website at www.circlewood.online or write to us at podcast at circlewood.online. I am Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Forrest Reed is our sound engineer and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.